0: Hello, and welcome to the ASEMA Development Podcast. My name's Tad Thorley, and I'm hosting today for the first time. We also have a whole host of guests today as well. We have David Brady. Howdy, howdy. David Solano. Hello. Eddie Lopez. Howdy. Matt Hardy.
1: Hello there.
0: Mike Chalice. Hello. And Sergio Peralta, who's also new. Yeah, I am new. Hi, guys. Our topic today is how did you get up to speed when you're starting with a new code base? Also with that comes along the idea of working with legacy code. One thing I was thinking I'd start with is maybe focus on a Rails project because I know we all are familiar with Rails and then maybe uh, expand that out to just code bases in general. My first question for you guys is, When you start brand new with a new Rails code base, what is the first file that you think you look at?
1: I'm gonna say the gem file.
2: Me too. Cool.
1: What does the gem file teach you? By looking at the gem file, you can see some of the project's dependencies, some of which you may already be familiar with. And that can really help you learn your way around a project, just knowing the tools that are being used inside of a project. For instance, if I look at a gem file and I see great API in there, I know where those endpoints are going to be, and I know how they're going to be structured, right? Right.
0: I think it's interesting. You can often see like Ruby version. Sometimes people will put it in a gem file, internal gems,
3: I was just gonna uh, just comment that I have a a weird answer to the uh, what file do you start with? And the answer is no. My favorite <laughs> place to start is by pairing up with somebody and having them show me the app so that I know what it does. And then like very, very quickly, somebody will sit you down and they'll say, Okay, let's go here. And then they will casually mention offhand, you know, oh, this whole section is generated. It's just static. It's just generated by Jekyll. And I'm like, ah, okay, I know where all of this section comes from. After I pair up with them, or while I'm pairing up, I will often pull up the directory listing of the root of the project and often app models and app controllers. And I'm trying to come in very breadth first, very top down. So (laughs) I can work on a project for a day or three without ever opening a source code file to look at it. Probably because I'm a bad programmer, but I like to get the layout of the forest before I like take a core sample out of a
4: tree. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. A guided uh, tour, right? I totally agree mm-hmm. with David. I I'd pretty much do the same. But if you ask me to look like one file, kind of just to have a, look, a quick look of, of the entire project, I'll say Jane file, but I'll also take a look at the application controller. And if you see some weird stuff happening there. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'll give you an idea. Like, I remember the one time I saw it and so an application control from a really old code right like legacy I don't know it was like eight thousand lines <laughs> so <laughs> it was pretty funny at that time I, right
0: well it's interesting to see some of these like grandpa classes right that everybody's going to be inheriting from because a lot of times there'll be behavior that's happening there maybe like a before filter and after something going on that it's always happening but you don't realize it because it's kind of tucked
1: away. Yeah, I think Dave brought up a very good point though. If possible, the most important thing is let's look at a running version of this application and have a tour of the UI. You know, you can learn a whole lot just by seeing the UI of something, get a feel for how it works. And then I also really liked how he said top down If I'm going to get into the code and look at something, first thing I'm going to look at are the endpoints, right? Because that's the entry to everything. And I think if you can track down the proper endpoints, you can find your way through the entire integration of that particular feature.
0: No, I agree. Finding kind of the entry points into the code is really valuable. And the parts that you present to people are probably some of the more important pieces, right?
1: Absolutely. Any transformations that happen can be tracked down as long as you can find your entry point. I mean, with modern IDEs, it's pretty easy to navigate your way through code and kind of fumble your way through to see where things happen.
3: I think it might also depend on your team style as well. Like I will often open a project and like David was saying, drill into like the applications controller. But I will do it like dynamically. I'll just go to the project and do rake routes and say, okay, you tell me where these things are coming from. And that'll show you things like things that are mounted in the app directory that aren't in the app controller, if I, you know they're, they're brought in from somewhere else and that sort of thing. But it'll also show you in a hurry if the team cares about what the rake routes thing returns, right if you if you get seven hundred lines of restful routes and it's just create update, edit, create update you know like, down you know over and over and over are just like, uh, okay, all right, this is this is not the place to do this. But if the team does care about it, if it's like maintained and very, very careful, which actually dovetails onto the next idea, which is the, the next place that I will check is I'll try to run the spec suite, and right. you very quickly find out if the team is writing specs like after they write the code, if they just try to bolt down the edges of their features, or if they started with the specs first and said, the app should do this. And now when you open up the spec file, it says, oh yeah, the app does this, and it does this, and it does this, and you drill under that, and it says, and it does it this way, this way, this way. And you can really see that. It's almost like recognizing handwriting in the code, and that goes into like gathering the lay of the land on a project. Is You, you very quickly pick up, okay, that developer is, is very terse and very direct, and this developer is very verbose and nuanced, and it changes how you pick up their code and how you follow their record. Right.
0: I still remember I was on a team and uh, one of my coworkers asked me, so what does this feature do? And I said, oh, well, I wrote a bunch of tests. I told him where the tests were. And he's like, no, I don't care about the test. Just tell me what it does. And I was kind of dumbfounded because for me, the tests are telling me what it does, right? Like that was the obvious place to learn what something does is by going and looking at the tests. But his approach was a little different, I guess. And it sounds like you're kind of the same way, Dave, where you would love to s- see some good tests to really get a grasp what's important, what people's styles
3: are, what it does, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. At risk of ending up on a, a soapbox yeah. about specs, and some of you have been to conferences where I've really gotten on my soapbox. There are multiple audiences for testing and a lot of people don't care about the first two audiences. And that ends up creating low value tests, which is sad because the reason they don't care about those first two audiences is because they've been brutalized by low value tests. It's a vicious cycle. You write them bad, you get them bad. But the first two audiences of a spec file is if I pull down the app and run the you know migrations and, and boot everything up, I want to run the spec suite and I don't want to have a conversation. I just want a green dot or a green okay. Does the app work? Does it tick over? After that, the next bit of audience is if I'm coming into a piece of code that I have to maintain, I will go to the spec suite and say, can you tell me the story? of this? What does this code do? What is this responsibility? What's it? Tr- you know, don't tell me how it's doing it. Just tell me what it's trying to do. And then do I care about drilling in to say, you know what, how does the API work? How does the code work and you know, what are the implementation details? And if you care about those first two audiences, and getting those things airtight, the spec suite will get your back later on. And yeah, when you come into a team, if the, and this harks back to what I just said about you know the team style, if the entire team doesn't care about the test suite, the specs won't get your back, right? They'll be very sparse and there'll be lots of gaps in them. And, you know, you come behind and do your best to preach in the wilderness, you know, to, you know, repent and and write better specs.
0: So further your point, Dave, you'll know which flags
1: they use when they run their tests even. Yes. Right. Thanks for saying that, Dave, because I think something that really helps define how I would look into an unknown code base is, team culture. Any of us who have been in this industry for a length of time, right? We've worked in code bases where there aren't any tests, where that culture isn't there that people want to help you out. If I walk into a great culture, like we have here at Asema, first thing I'm doing is I'm pairing with someone and they're going to walk me through mm-hmm. the code and they're going to lend me some assistance and they're going to explain how things are tested and why we test, you know, and the importance of those things. And I think culture has a really big role to play in this.
3: A thousand percent to that. I moved last year from the Atlas team over to the data services team because I really wanted to get into big data. And one of the things that surprised me is that our process over on data services is a little bit old school. It's a a little bit enterprise. It it was where software development was in like 2005, like pre-agile. And I'm not saying that to criticize the team. It's just that's that's just like the, the the way the culture here works. So we don't use tests. Developers work alone. They want a quiet office so that they can think re- and get really, really deep in the code. That creates some artifacts, right? There are files in the code base that have been abandoned for three years. And you have to know when you get into a file, oh, I need to go check Git. This is sounding like a like an indictment of my current team, but I don't mean it that way at all. You <laughs> have to come to the team from their culture right you can come into a piece of code and go this makes no sense how does this ever work oh wait a minute git log oh this was last touched in 2017 this is probably not current code okay cool fine and then you can you can pick it up and move to the next piece and you run into a piece of code and you're like how the heck does this work and you have to instead of saying well the the atlas team i would expect a very shallow cut a very quick test a very high level you know, break this down, just this one piece, how does it, you know detach this and run it? But on data services, I expect a data warehouse to be present. I expect a lot of like very expensive dependencies to be present. I expect to lean on those very, very heavily. And so I'm not expecting a small cut. I'm expecting to pick up this entire ETL file that, you know, transforms the data out of the merchant portal database and moves it into our data warehouse. I expect to pick up that entire chain and hold it all in my head. Because remember, we are working, we're not pairing, we're not doing high bandwidth communication. We're doing slow, deep thinking about how we work with the things. And that really, really dramatically affects you know what direction the code is going to be in. I'm not going to go look for a test. I'm going to dig into this file, this file, and this file, because we have a working template of how these three files always fit together.
0: Yeah. We've heard from probably, I would say, some more of the senior folks, on what they look for and what they do. I'd like to also hear from our newer folks, Eddie, when you get a new code base or you're exploring, what's your approach?
5: To give you a bit of perspective, I want to premise saying that I only got about a year and a half of experience total. And I probably went on it the wrong way, right? I didn't ask the right questions. I was just too eager to pick up like tech debt tickets. And so I got familiarized with the code by picking up work that didn't have as much attention. And I slowly trickled my way through the whole code base based on my necessities. In hindsight, that's probably like the wrong way to do things, at least to me. With having a bit more wisdom, not a lot, but having a little bit more, seeing some of other people's approaches to tackling new code bases is amazing like you for instance, made a comment about, I like to look at the biggest file, right? Like, so if you look in the app directory for models, for example, uh, the biggest contender for that was, right? Lease. And you're like, huh, A similar does leases. And I think for me that would have been on something to truly understand before I even picked up any changes. Because in order for the changes that I'm implementing to be efficient, I also need to understand at the core what the app is doing. And that was my biggest fault when I first started. So I would say grasping the fundamental core of what the actual app that you're developing for does. And one thing that really solidified that for me was running the app as an end user. So like I played around with it, played around with the functions, what am I able to do? But you mentioned something really important that I've done without even realizing is ask for help, right? Asking my peers- what their experience is like with the coaching changes I'm supposed to be making and have them just take time to really drill that in my head I think that's really helped me out a lot I just want to yeah. back
3: you up Eddie I don't think you were wrong with your your initial approach like jumping in grabbing like a corner case ticket or a weird you know bit of abandoned work first of all that's proactive you're not on your back foot waiting for your manager to just throw stuff at you you're actually like going in and saying what can i go get and that changes your attitude and then the other thing is you would pick something up and try to figure it out and one of the most powerful things you can do is just grab one piece of data and follow it completely through the system like from the moment a user types it in on the web page to when it ends up in the accountants reporting spreadsheet how did that get through the system and knowing all of those pieces, you have to string all of the beads onto the string that represent the app. And that is super powerful. It gives you
4: a ton of context. It's also nice, for example, so you receive like some ticket with a new implementation, but maybe no one knows how to get that calculation, right? But you know that your PM or someone else knows that that's reflected somewhere in the UI. And you know that if you go to that specific part of the UI and you find that number and say, oh, here it is. Now you follow back through the code, through the backend, and then you know, oh, this is how the way it works. And if you're able to follow that approach also, that's a good good way to do your work, right? To come to the idea on how to solve this, because you're already, you you were able to follow it through the UI and through the end code. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there's different approaches. And I don't
0: know that certain approaches are necessarily better than others. And sometimes it's just like the approach that works for you, given your current familiarity, experience level, that kind of thing. Uh, Sergio, I'd like to hear from you because you've recently joined the team and you've had to do this where you, you came in and we said, here's a code base, figure it out and go. What did you do and what was your experience? Yeah,
2: yeah, I have a nice history behind. It's like, um, I don't have a, yeah, very big experience with with Ruby Rails. I, I am coming from another stack, and I, ha- I am facing two different things. One is lacking the knowledge of Ruby Rails and some things, and also lack of the knowledge of the business rules behind and the legacy code and that ton of code. So, my approach right now is yeah, seeing the that unit testing. Getting a know of how the application works. Yeah, talk with other people about um, if they have this kind of issue before. uh, And also with most experienced people about how to do some specific things. So, yeah, uh, what I can tell is like I am the kind of people that, that like to learn. Myself is like trying to figure it out by myself. If I don't spend enough time to try to figure it out by myself, uh, I guess I don't move uh, in the right path. It's like having someone else telling you how to do step-by-step step is good. But at least for me, I need the time to process myself and figure out myself and struggle with some stuff, then continue with the road. That's what I do, but usually, but it's, it's, it's like the, the way I learn. So that's the thing I, I, I can say.
0: I think that's a fair point because definitely the code I've thought about and struggled with is the code I remember best. Yeah. Right?
5: I want to really fixate on what you just said, Dad. Holy cow. That resonated with me deep down, right? The ticket that I particularly struggle with the most are the ones that not only grow my skill as a developer, but also, like, really drill down, you know, for my fundamental understanding of that particular code change that I'm making. I also want to say thank you, Dave, for reaffirming my path initially for Merchant Portal's code. Use.
2: Hey guys, I don't know if this, this is out of topic, but right now I, I am using this ChatGPT tool in some cases where, hey, um, what if we can improve this code? Uh, at least for me, I don't have the sense that the code is wrong. But I just paste the code, check what chat GPT is thinking, and just let's compare it with my notes and see if the things are good or not. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, I got nice answers. Sometimes not. Even the code doesn't run. But I, I like it. It's a tool that is helping me in some stuff. Maybe when I, I feel stuck with with something. But yeah, yeah, just to mention, I don't know if it's out of the, the pocket, but. Yeah.
3: I've played with ChatGPT as well. And the thing I love about asking it to write your code for you is not that it's going to write good code, but that it will it'll say, Okay, well here's a here's a block of code. And then in plain English, underneath the code, it starts breaking down the code that it just gave you. And it says, Okay, when I do this, it's setting up this kind of a thing. And then I'm gonna do a double dispatch into that. And then I'm gonna do this, which is gonna set and it walks you through how the entire thing. I asked it to write a really weird SQL query. And it gave me a SQL query and then broke it down. It said when I use this window function, I'm going to get this. And then when I do this, I'm going to do a subquery with a I'm like, holy crap, that's awesome. Yeah, I I like the explanation that it gives. It wonder- seems like pure programming, but
0: just with a bot instead of a person, right? Yeah. Yeah.
5: I've had ChatGPT break down code in certain aspects. And I'm like, huh, I don't really understand what this method is actually doing. So, like, I'd copy and paste it to chat GP team, Like, can you break down in layman terms what exactly this is doing? And it kind of follows the same thing that Dave said, where, like, it adds comments, you know, to each line of code and tells you, oh, this is what this does, this is what this does. This one. I was just like, oh, interesting. I did not know Ruby was capable of such things.
3: I had a, a fun, it was a little off topic, but it gets more into the chat GPT thing. The other thing I like about it is it really does act like a pair. I asked it to write a bit of code, um, like a bash prompt for colorizing some things. It's who who keeps ANSI color codes memorized, right? And It came back and it said, well, you can do this and it gave me the ANSI color codes for the thing that I wanted, and then it said, that works because this, this, and this, and it was wrong. The explanation, I mean, the, the code was right, but the explanation was wrong and ChatGPT, it's read-only in terms of like the, the the big brain. Like when you when you finish a conversation, nobody can use the contents of your conversation. It's it's not modifying and updating the AI, but in the context of the conversation, it will act like a pair programmer. So I actually I went close. That's very good, but this is wrong. And I I told the bot this is wrong. This piece actually means this, and this other piece means this thing. And then because it's a bot and because it's AI, I said. Would you try to explain it again? And it gave me the code and the explanation again. And this time it was perfect. It said back in its own words what I had just told it about the code. I thought that was just mind-blowing. But really great. And a, and a good way to think. Again, like a, a pair programming partner. Well, I thought it was interesting, Dave, that you
0: pointed out that maybe step zero is not even read the code, get someone to guide you through the code. And it sounds like chat gpt can kind of do that right like it can serve as a as a sort of guide as you're trying to understand a new code base
3: yeah it's going to give you what we're trying to accomplish along with the how we accomplish it yeah it breaks it down on at both levels it's really neat
5: not to mention Builds- that chat gpt is almost always available for you to pair versus mm-hmm. asking someone else on the team who might be busy do you think we'll see more tools
0: like that integrated in the future? I mean, we already have some pretty powerful plugins and IDE support and things like that for understanding code base. Do you think we'll get kind of cyborg guided things as well?
3: I think it's inevitable, yeah. Yeah, Everyone's afraid that, oh, the bots are going to take over my job. No, they're not going to take over your job. But your job in five years is not going to be to punch in all of the codes to create a Rails route and a backing controller. In five years, the most effective programmers are the ones that tell their IDE, which is backed by an AI, and say, "Give me this resource, control I disk and connect it to that." And the AI goes, duh, 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 duh. Uh, "On this one connection, did you mean this or that? I want it that way." Okay, cool. And it'll spit it all out. The people who can operate the high-level machine the best are the people that you know will have the best jobs in five years. And it's exactly the same way. We are. You, you go back 25 years, people were running, well, 35 years. People were writing code with text editors, with dumb text editors. And then IDEs came about. And our job now is to know how to run more and more sophisticated IDEs. I think that's inevitable. Yeah. So
0: wow. your argument would probably be when you first start, like you were talking about meeting with somebody who could give you a tour of the overarching ideas, point out the different pieces from kind of The higher level thing. And it sounds like you're saying that's probably not going to go away, that you're still going to need to have someone that has an understanding of what needs to happen, what all the pieces are and that kind of thing. But those pieces are maybe going to be, you know, bot augmented rather than you hand code all of them.
3: Yeah, 100%. There's always going to be a market for somebody thinking. It was a fantastic quote that I saw about 25 years ago. I I can't remember who said it, but the way they phrased it was no amount of best practices, industry sophisticated tooling or agile or otherwise processes can take the place of knowing how to program a stupid computer. And I think that will continue to be true where the term program a computer is slowly turning in. It's no longer... Dropping, you know, bit one, bit zero, bit one, bit zero into the CPU. Now it's it's more and more. Tell me how you feel, and I'll write an app. So one of the interesting
0: things that uh, was mentioned is, as you look through the code, you can kind of see people's signature, so to speak, on different mm-hmm. parts of the code. Does that become more consistent? And if the code becomes more consistent, being generated by a tool, does that make it easier for a tool to then? understand the
3: code? Ooh, I think the second half of that is going to be really hard because I think the first half of the question of does it become more consistent? I would say it depends on your team. If you're doing very high bandwidth, high pairing, lots of retrospectives, lots of communication, then yes, the code is going to homogenize as everybody cross-pollinates you know, best practices you know, between each other. Where the team that I'm on, which is involving a lot of really, really deep thought, I have found really clever tricks that my coworkers have done in the code, but they're down in the code and they're undocumented. And when I go into that person's piece of code, I will copy that trick for the next piece because it's consistent with their style. But when I then move from that person's code to another person's code, who doesn't, it's clear from the context of the code that this person's skill set is way, way powerful somewhere else in the code. I try to copy that. But they don't understand that trick that that first developer was doing. I won't copy that in because that second developer is probably going to come back to this piece of code and maintain it, and I don't want to trip them up. So maybe you know, maybe in in you know five or ten or years, that the bot can basically step in and say, "Okay, yeah, this team has a a highly fractionated, you know, highly speciated personalities in the code." (laughs) I've had long conversations with my boss about. I got some code, and I think it was written by this guy. Zach just looked at the file and he went, "Yep, that's him." And you know, and we had a laugh about that person's style. And I think early cuts at the AI are going to make the mistake of thinking that there is the way to do it. And later, more and more sophisticated versions are going to recognize that. Oh no, there's there's a, bu- a bunch of different ways to do it, and some of them are more appropriate to the given situation.
5: Yeah. I kind of want to add to that, if that's okay. The skills that I've learned so far have been with me uh, stumbling upon the answer, right? Reading upon documentations about someone who ran into this problem once before and explaining the solution and how they got there. The reason to why I was able to remember those solutions so well was because I landed on that um, after, I don't know, half a day or a day, you know, for a solution that was so simple. I'm afraid that if we start relying a bit more on AI services that are just spoon-feeding our answers to our questions almost immediately, I feel like that may create like bad habits, in a sense, and uh, oh, yeah? therefore like um, losing retention on that answer, well, right? There's, a, there's I think- a really
3: fantastic book from about 20 years ago called The Pragmatic Program, and one of the chapters in the book is called Don't Trust Evil Wizards. And back in like Visual Studio in, around Y2K era, there were wizards that you could run. It, it was like it was like a, you know, when you do Rails scaffold and it will generate the scaffolding for you, right? The wizard would do this. It would write a whole bunch of really deeply nested, complicated C code for you. And it would wrap it up in macros. And you never really needed to know what those macros did until you did need to know it and then you were screwed because you had no idea how the wizard was doing it and that's an evil wizard like a good wizard is somebody who's going to you know scaffold out your code and then leave it all very clearly documented at a very high level and then yeah you have to come back and follow through and understand what the wizard was doing for you you don't want the wizard and it, I realized that with ai being you know intelligence being the i in in ai you don't want your wizard to do your thinking for you. And that's the danger of AI. It really feels like it's doing thinking for us. And the first people to really leverage AI will be the ones who know how to constrain its thinking into the things that we can understand and maintain so that if we move outside the AI's you know, knowledge or where it's you know, the, the power band for that tool, that you're not left high and dry with wondering, well how did it build this great big black box? You're like, Oh no, I've got I've all the pieces. I can, I can
5: modify this from here. Or what happens if you get, you're so acclimated to use a service, the spoon feeds you that. And then all of a sudden that service is down because that's inevitable, right? Mm. Services go down all the time. So what are you going to do in that point when you're in a pressing uh, time constraint and you're like, Oh, I really need to get this done. And all of a sudden your tool totally that you relied on. Is
3: not available? Yeah. It's the 3am fire, right? It's like, okay. It's just me. Emacs and a server that's on fire. How are we going to get through this? Right. For everyone else on the team, step one is shut down Emacs and start up Vim, but I get it.
2: Hey, uh, Eddie, I have my my thought about uh, what you mentioned of bad habits. Um, for example, uh, look back in the past, in, in the 80s uh, when everyone who, who wants to make a program ha- have to do assembly coding and, and right now, <laughs> It's nearly impossible that that some of you guys uh, use assembly for write a program. So, yeah, it's like that. The, the technology is changing, and and we are changing with this. And probably I don't know if in the future uh, we will be based only on the IA. So AI, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, that's a, that's a point. It's like everything is changing, and and probably our habits will change uh, with the tech. I think so.
3: I worry that we're getting off the topic of uh, of tearing into legacy code bases, but I realize I'm the, the problem as well as uh, the person the concerned about it. But yeah, I am the source of most of my problems. I, I wanted to shift a little bit to talk about a couple of resources that I have used for maintaining older code. Is, is now a good time to, to do that? Yeah, I think that's great. Okay. I think most of us have heard about working effectively with legacy code. It's a book by Michael Feathers and it's, it's still the gold standard in, in my opinion. He, he talks about like when you get a gigantic legacy code base, what do you do? Like You got this big chunk of untested data with this hideous dependency. How do you dig into it? And it's, it's a little bit like the old refactoring book where he literally gives you recipes, right? If it's this, you need to do you know extract static method or you need to change the parameter of this but try to maintain the signature and that sort of thing. There's another book though, that I think is just this beautiful, beautiful gem. It's called Code Reading. I'm gonna mangle this guy's name. Uh, Deo Midas Spinellis, I think is his name. But Code Reading is a book about reading code. He starts with the argument that every other creative endeavor that you go into, an engineering class or anything, the first thing they do is they sit you down and they make you study the masters. And like, if you take a painting class, the first thing you do is copy different paintings and different styles to, to learn these artists' styles so that you can develop your own style. But when we teach software, we tell you, plagiarism will get you expelled. Don't even look at anything outside of your paper. And that's crazy because when you get out into a career, your boss just wants the website to process a credit card. You know, She doesn't care if you wrote it all original code or if you had an AI you know, spit something out. It doesn't matter.
0: We just want it to work. stack overflow, right? That's yeah, that's or stack, overflow, right? stack overflow exists.
3: Yeah. And so code reading is literally a book on how to develop the skill of reading code. He makes the pretty bold argument that open source is just a godsend for us. He's like, yeah, you, you probably want to learn C. Now this, this book is 10 or 15 years old, but he's like, you probably want to learn C because like, if you learn just enough C to get around, you can now read the entire code base of Linux and all of the tools that are in Linux, uh, because the source code can see. And holy crap, right? It's like you want to figure something out. And he throws a wild curveball, like in chapter three or four. He's like, okay, write a program to calculate the date of the next Easter. You have one hour, go. And, okay, hang on. Easter falls on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Oh, good luck! Right, and he walks you through how you you can solve this in fifteen minutes if you know that uh, Linux has a bunch of calendaring apps and there's an app, there's a function down in there called POTM, Phase of the Moon, (laughs) and it will let you calculate when is the next full moon going to be, and it's it's hyper accurate and it works. I mean, it's good enough for the operating system. And you have to be able to surf into a million line code base and find the piece that you need. And then read that code in high detail. to go, oh, it's this. This is the math, and then this is the offset, and this is the thing. You like, okay, cool. And down the road you go, and you can you can build it out. You know, and th- th- that I think was a really really good thing because he, he talked about the, the the necessary grammars and patterns that you you want to develop. Tad, you mentioned at the start that you know we we'd start with Rails and then back out to general, and that this is a perfect example of this is that when you're in a Rails project. There's a certain directory structure that you can expect. And there's a certain way right. that the resources are, you know, that we expect them. There's a naming convention for how tables work in the database. And if you switch from Rails to Django, that changes. Or if you switch from, like on the team that I'm on, we're all writing in Python and we don't use a framework. We we wrote our own stuff, but it is very rigid. There, there's a very solid process that we use for, you know the way we get data from the database is standard. The way we transform it is standardized on our team. The way we load it into the warehouse is standard, and then we write a custom piece for each of those three steps. But those three steps are very standardized at like at the interface or at the behavior level. And coming from Rails into this team, instead of saying, "Well, I expect there to be an app directory or a models directory and a a, a db directory," I'm just saying, "Okay." What is the structure? Oh, the structure is we're going to have this directory, and under this directory, we have these subfolders with these files in them. And you very quickly, you learn what is the layout of the forest? And that will tell you, when you look at a tree, you're like, well, where is this tree? This tree is down in the models directory, or this tree is, is deep in the, uh, the ETL directory for this particular vendor. And I'm like, ah, okay. I know where the holes are in this. There are going to be some holes in this file that are gonna be filled in by the base classes because the app structure is gonna take care of it for us.
0: So a follow-up question that I I had is, it seems like both when dealing with legacy code and just any new code base, uh, your ability to just read code and have experience with code goes a long way. And I like your idea that there's tons of open source out there, but... Mm -hmm. The thing is, like, they're not all masterpieces, right? There's no. some really bad open source code out there. So my follow-up question is, how do you find the masterpieces in the
3: sea of GitHub repos? How does that old quote go? If if you want to find a prince, you got to kiss a lot of frogs. I, I would actually say there's an essential code reading skill, which is the ability to, as you are reading through this piece gets this transforms this data sends this message to this object at the same time you're doing that low level like almost like compiling the code in your head to find out what it does there's also another thread in your brain that's basically assessing the the quality of the code that you're reading like is this code easy to follow and is it easy to follow because it's very clearly written or is it easy to follow just because it happens to be in my preferred style and I love the moments. Like, I don't know if I would recognize a masterpiece if it smacked me in the face, but I do know that I become consciously aware of the feeling of pleasure reading code. That's how that's, I'll phrase it. I find myself smiling when I read code that I, I simultaneously realize I understand this code and it's in a completely different style than what I'm used to, which means in the worst possible way for this code to try to teach me, it's teaching me amazingly well. And that I think is, 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 I don't know if it's a masterpiece, but it's certainly the code that makes me the happiest. Like, like, I'm like, I want to I wanna write code like this person because they, they are communicating to a stranger very, very well what their thoughts are and how they want to accomplish a thing. Excellent. We're at the end of our time.
0: So I'm going to, I think we'll just end on that and just encourage all of our listeners to go out and uh, read some code, huh? Right on.